So on April 27th, 2011, if you were in Tuscaloosa, you, you won't forget that day. I mean, if you lived in the state of Alabama or anywhere really around the southeast, you will not forget that day. Uh, Lacey and I had just gotten engaged. Um, we'd been, been engaged for a whole month at that point. I was working at a job in Birmingham, and she was uh, still in school here at the, here, down here at the university. And I knew, bless her heart, that she was not going to keep up with the weather. Uh, that was just not something she did at that point in, in her life. That, that is not the case anymore because of that day, but on that day, I knew that she wouldn't really keep up with it. So when my employer turned us loose at 12, uh, I came to Tuscaloosa to be with my fiancé to make sure that she knew what was going on and could stay safe. Uh, now, something that you might not know about me is that I've always been really interested in severe weather, um, acknowledging that, it, that terrible, horrible things can happen uh, during severe weather, but still just fascinated by storms and, and, and what they do and how they form and, and everything about them. And so the, there are a lot of times when we have these severe weather outbreaks like we had that day where, in some sense, it, it, I kind of treat it like a, like a college football game day, and I don't mean that in terms of like excitement over the event itself, but in terms of number of screens that I have where I'm keeping up with what's going on. So I remember that day, James Spann was on the TV, the Weather Channel was on the laptop, and Twitter was just a, was just a go. And I was, I was trying to keep up with all of the happenings and all that was, all that was going on. And so I remember, because we're, we're tracking it, I mean, I remember clearly uh, that moment, you know, I guess probably around 5 o'clock, a little before 5 o'clock, where we start to see outside of Tuscaloosa, maybe a county away if I remember right, uh, we start to see this massive tornado that's on the ground, and the storm track has it coming right towards Tuscaloosa. It, it's, it's headed right for us. And so you're watching it and a little concerned, but it's still you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes away. We've, we've got plenty of time for this thing to move, to dissipate, to go away, what have you. And then it didn't. And so I remember I'm sitting in, in Lacey's apartment. She lived at Bent Tree, which if you know where Bent Tree Apartments is, or if you don't know where that is, that's at the corner of Hargrove and 10th Avenue, you know, just like a mile up the street from the football stadium. And so we're in her and her roommate's apartment, keeping up with everything, and, you know, you get the, the, the camera that pans out, kind of looking out from Tuscaloosa towards Mississippi. And you see it just kind of gradually come into the frame, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until it's, it's here. And I remember James Spann, because he has just this innate ability to remember literally everything, and so he starts calling out uh, street names, and so we're hearing these street names that kind of sound familiar, but we're not sure. But then we hear him say Calusa Avenue. It's crossing Calusa Avenue. And when we heard that, we panicked because we knew that where we were was just right up the street from Calusa Avenue. So Lacey gets her roommate. Her roommate goes and gets her neighbor and dog from upstairs. And we all go running into Lacey's roommate's closet. And we bunker down in there. And we wait. And I've always heard, and you've probably heard this too, that tornadoes sound like freight trains rolling through. That's not true. You, you may disagree with me. You may feel like that's what it sounds like, but I don't think so. Because what I heard was a 737 landing in the parking lot. And you know, when people talk about tornadoes, if you've heard people that have, that have lived through a tornado hitting them, thankfully that wasn't us, it didn't hit us, but it hit across the street in, I believe it's called Glendale Gardens, I think is the name of that neighborhood, just right across the street. Um, it was mowing through there. And for what felt like an eternity, it was really about 10 seconds, we heard it roar. 
and we pray, and the noise goes away. We leave the closet. We leave the apartment, and we start looking around. We want to see, like, okay, what happened? We don't know how devastating this tornado has been at that point. And so we start driving around Tuscaloosa just trying to, to see what happened, to see what's going on. And it was, it was probably not until the moment where we're at the hospital, we walk across the train tracks to what used to be Cedar Creek, uh, the Cedar Creek neighborhood, and we just see it, it's flat. It's like a bomb went off. If you've probably heard it, things described like that before. And it was a little while after that moment. It was that moment we realized just how devastating this tornado was. And it was a little while after seeing the destruction in Cedar Crest neighborhood that I, I came to realize just how close Lacey and I came to dying that day. If that tornado was a quarter of a mile further north, it hits Bentry Apartments straight on. And the little wood frame closet that we had taken shelter in, it wouldn't have stood a chance. There would have been no way. We, where we had fled, where we had gone for refuge, was absolutely useless against a storm that strong. And so in the text that we're in today, David is responding to someone who has urged him to flee for shelter. You know, a storm is building and David's advisor is freaked out. But David shows them a better way. So if you will, turn to Psalm chapter 11. That's our text for this morning. It says, To the choir master of David, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let Him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for time to gather with your people. We thank you for time to sing praises to you, to pray to you, and to study your word. Lord, be gracious to us as we look to your word this morning. May our study of it be worship. May it honor you. And may you be pleased to grow and mature our faith. Strengthen our affections. Lead us away from that which does not please you. And teach us to love what you love. And pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So there are two things that I think David shows us in the text this morning. Uh, the first is that where you flee in times of trouble matters to God. And so I want you to remember just for a second the, the framework that David gave us for the Psalms back in Psalm 1 and in Psalm 2. You might recall that in, in Psalm 1, David said that the righteous person loves the law of God, and God knows the righteous and will prosper them. But the wicked person does not love the law of God. They reject God. Therefore, what David tells us is that the wicked will stand before the judgment of the Lord and they will be driven away from him. David then describes the wicked in Psalm 2 
as raging against God. If you remember, that's where he gives us the image of kings and rulers of the nations. They are scheming against God and they are scheming against his chosen king. They are looking, they are, they are against the one who exercises God's rule over the nations. But David tells us that God just laughs at them. And so that leads to, uh, that leads to David ending Psalm 2 with a warning, submit to the Lord's anointed king. Otherwise, you will be destroyed because the wicked cannot stand against God. And so in some ways, that provides us with a 30,000-foot view of what we read in the Psalms. But beginning in Psalm 3, David has painted a pretty clear picture of what raging against the Lord and raging against his anointed looks like up close and, and personal. But even so, through it all, through all that we have already seen that David has suffered and his uh, anxiety and his stress at the things that he sees going on around him, he has maintained that the righteous will trust God. Why? Because God hears their pleas. He knows their plight. And he will sustain them. But he also sees the wicked. He sees those who rage against him. And he will judge them. So Psalm 11, when we get there, Psalm 11 is an expression of this trust that the Lord will provide true refuge for the righteous, but will pour out the full measure of his wrath on the wicked. So David expresses this trust within the context of a well-meaning advisor who is urging David to flee to shelter in response to the schemes of the ungodly. Psalm 11 is, is a response to this advice that he's been given, which David restates for the reader at the end of verse 1 and through verse 3. Now, when we look at that, there may be some question as to whether or not this is coming from uh, friendly counsel. And the reason for that, we've seen in previous psalms that David has been taunted by his foes. But that doesn't seem to, to really fit the counsel that David has received here because the encouragement is to flee because he appears to actually be in, in danger. Uh, and so it really wouldn't make sense for, the, for David's foes to be encouraging him to get away from danger. There are also those who have suggested that this is an internal dialogue that's happening within David. And I'll grant that that does seem more plausible than David's foes taunting him, but still, I, I, I just don't think that that even makes the most sense of the text that we have in front of us. And I say that because of the way that David bookends the advice that he's been given in verse 1 and verse 4. That doesn't really seem to leave an internal dialogue happening within David open as an option. Because in this psalm, what we see is that David seems pretty secure in the refuge that he has found in the Lord, despite what's, what's going on around him. So that leaves us with what I, I think is the most straightforward reading of the text. David is being advised by a friend to escape from danger. Now, whether this is one individual, it may be a group of counselors, that's unclear. But what is plainly obvious is that whomever it is that is counseling David, they are panicked. They are freaked out. You know, they see the wicked and the ungodly in society making moves to suppress the voices and the influence of the righteous. And so they first express that in how they talk about what the wicked are doing. You know, the counsel that David receives, looking at verse 2, is that they bend the bow. 
They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So this phrase, shoot in the dark, what it implies is that the wicked are working in the shadows. The CSB, if you have that, it it actually reads to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. So they're trying to keep their true intentions hidden. The wicked do not want anyone to see that they intend to silence the voices of the individuals within the society who will push back against them, who will try to stop and subvert uh, their, their plans. The wicked, what they're doing, is working to bring about moral decay. And we see this because of verse 3, where it says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The main goal of the wicked in their scheming, in their plotting against the Lord and His anointed, is to cause law and order to come tumbling down. They want to bring down the structures that protect the righteous from their schemes. So the word there, foundations, that's just a reference to law and order, to a society that is set up so that the godly flourish and the ungodly who love unrighteousness are punished for their unrighteousness. But those who have given counsel to David sense that the righteous have reached a point, that it's reached a point in their society where the righteous are in danger of being outnumbered, outgunned, and unable to to right the ship. It seems that the the wicked have been having uh, some success, probably a great deal of success, in their efforts to change the culture. You know, they've been able to move the goalposts, if you will, regarding what is considered acceptable, and this is to the, to the detriment of the righteous. And the wicked aren't done yet. They're still moving, moving the goal, goalpost. We'll see this a little bit more next week in Psalm 12. Here it's kind of like on the front end of what happens as the wicked are scheming. Next week, Pastor Michael will preach from Psalm 12, and it's going to deal with, all right, what happens when it's... It, the takeover is, 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 is full, full bore. It's, 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 it's in. It's happened. Uh, but here, it's, it's still, they're pushing towards that, and David's counselors are, are freaked out. And they're freaked out because it seems that the wicked are willing to do anything to curb the influence of the righteous. You know, that could be through underhanded tactics like slander and gossip that cause the righteous to lose favor in the public eye. I mean, think about it. Once trust is gone then the godly person's voice just becomes white noise. It, it probably includes winning some who have been seen as godly, those who have been viewed as pillars of righteousness, winning them over to their side, which would simply prove those individuals who have been won over to not be righteous, not be godly, but opportunistic. But as that happens, think about it. If those who have been viewed as pillars of righteousness, if they're won over well, those who continue in righteousness, well, they're just going to get pushed to the side. They're going to be the, in the minority. They're going to be viewed as those who are behind the times, who are on the wrong side of the tracks. And so the, the concern that the foundations of the society are going to be destroyed points to more than just an assassination attempt on David and, and those who, who think like him. Uh, it's complete upheaval by upending anyone and anything that is opposed to to the wicked. However, the, the, the phrase, the, the urge that we see in verse 1, the, the, the request uh, that's given to David, flee like a bird to your mountain, that certainly implies that David's life 
is in danger, that the lives of people who are righteous and who are going to insist on and, and persist in, in living righteously, their lives are actually in danger. This is not just, I think, imagery talking about their schemes, but I think it is probably um, an actual reference to their lives being in danger. We're not just talking about character assassination. We're talking about actual assassination. And so we, we should sense panic raging inside whoever it is that is giving David counsel. You can almost see them just come bursting into the chamber wherever it is that David is when they find them and just come running in saying, David, they want to bring this whole thing down. And that means taking you out. You've got to go. And you've got to remember, David is the Lord's king. The Lord chose him to exercise his rule and his reign over the people. And so as the Lord's king, he was to lead Israel in modeling for the nations, worship and service to the one true God. And so part of that was upholding what is right and rejecting what is evil. David has a responsibility to ensure that the wicked are kept at bay and that the righteous flourish. So this counsel that David has received, it's coming from a place of fear and panic. He sees no other option than for David to skip town and go into hiding. Because if the wicked get David out of the way, who's going to oppose them? They'll just run roughshod over the righteous. The righteous will not stand a chance. Society as they know it is going to come crashing down. We can all empathize with David's advisors here, right? I mean, who hasn't felt like the world has been thrown into utter chaos and we're powerless to do anything about it? It's a scary world out there. We live in the age of the COVID-19 shutdown, where schools, businesses, churches, y'all know we didn't meet in here for two months, all closed. But abortion providers were able to stay open because that's health care. Abortion providers were actually able to fight states that had restricted their practice and won in court. It's because in our society, the murder of children is called health care and a basic right that cannot be denied. For the last month, you've had riots. You've had looting, violence, sending major cities into curfew. You even had a city government that allowed an autonomous zone to form and called it a summer of love. And all of that has served to overshadow the universal, almost universal rejection of racism, the unity that was forming in our country around calls for policing reform due to the horror that many felt after witnessing the videos of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd being murdered. But that unity was quickly overshadowed by violence. A story you might not have heard, but much closer to home, in early June... Two girls from California, ages 15 and 16, were rescued in Birmingham from human trafficking after being trafficked from Memphis to Atlanta to Birmingham. Meanwhile, in our culture, in our churches even, pornography continues to be treated like a rite of passage for young men. It's given a pass despite the link between the demand for pornographic content and sex trafficking. But we can't just say that it's all stuff that's happening out there in the big bad world, can we? 
The United Methodist Church is on the brink of a split over the embrace of the LGBTQIA plus agenda as Western churches continue to abandon biblical principles. But even then, it's not just those out there outside of our own denomination. The SBC was rocked last year by a sexual abuse crisis confronted with the fact that wolves in sheep's clothes had been victimizing women and children in our churches for years. And not only that, but in a lot of those cases, they could have and should have been stopped early on, but because basic safety measures were ignored, predators were allowed to continue posing as pastors, and their conduct went on unabated for years. There is moral decay just about anywhere you look. And this can be overwhelming, right? I mean, like David's counselors, we become panicked. And so we look for somewhere to flee. We try to find a solution for all of the chaos in the voting booth. You know, when things seem like they're getting out of control, many will immediately look to a candidate or to a party to save us from the movements and the ideas that scare us. And if our person or our party wins and maintains control, then we're elated because that brings with it a sense of security. My man is in the White House. My party controls the Senate. So now I know that all of those evildoers, they're going to be kept at bay. My way of life is safe. But if they lose, then we're deflated. Because now it seems like all hope is lost. Now I feel like I'm adrift in the middle of a Category 5 hurricane, and I'm sinking fast. Or we flee to the echo chamber that is our social media, our social media accounts. You see, when the news puts us on edge because we feel like our values are under attack, we bite back by blowing off steam online. We want to make sure that folks know where we stand. We then receive encouragement and hope from every like and every comment from people that agree with our sentiment, telling us, that's exactly what I was thinking, that's exactly what I wanted to say. And so this approval of man, it fills us with security. Or maybe we choose another route, which is to drown out and ignore all of the things in the world that are scary and lead us to despair. We flee to things like Netflix. We seek safety and comfort. Uh, we seek the safety and, and, and comfort from the hobbies and the interests that we have. And what I mean by this is, is when we feel depressed, when we feel anxious, or like everything that's going on is just more than I can bear, we just binge watch our favorite show. It's our primary go-to source of comfort when we need to escape from the world. And so as long as I can just make all the noise from culture and, and from a culture and chaos go away, well, then I have relief. But of course, fleeing for safety does not mean always running away from the things that cause us to feel insecure and afraid. Sometimes we flee to those things, seeking safety by trying to conform we might do this by refusing to confront a person about their sin. It could be a friend, a roommate, your spouse, a child, a parent, a neighbor, whoever, who clearly is holding to a position that is opposed to the rule and reign of God. But because we prize our comfort instead of calling sin what it is, we just sweep it away. We say, that, that's none of my business. That's, that's between them and God. That, or we laugh at the crude jokes. We join in the gossip. We watch the popular show despite the fact that it's clearly pornographic so that we don't feel left out. 
We pull back from anything that might be uh, perceived as being critical so that we don't end up wearing the label of the office prude who is behind on the times. We conform because we are desperate for a sense of security and for a sense of peace. But in the end, the promise of conformity is a lie. It offers peace, but it's just going to give you trouble. Why? Because to blend in, we are always going to have to agree with more and more that denies biblical ethics and morality because one misstep and the culture will shame you. But even more than that, we sacrifice peace with God in order to blend in with others. And so the question to answer is, which do we fear more? The wrath of man or the wrath of God? So in this text, David points us to a better way. We see, in, we see this in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? His point is obvious. He does not need to flee for refuge because he has refuge. He has taken refuge in the Lord who alone provides true and lasting refuge. And his reasoning for this becomes clear in verse 4. He tells us the Lord is on his throne. David is pointing to the fact that the Lord is not an absentee king. He says the Lord is in his holy temple and his throne is in heaven. The Lord isn't just kind of peeking down at the chaos that's taking place on his creation and just wondering, wonder what's going to happen next? He, he doesn't set things in motion and then just step away. No, he is ruling and reigning in heaven above the chaos and the calamity. He isn't passive. He's actively ruling over his creation just like he always has been. And because of David's trust in the Lord's reign, he's able to look to his advisors and basically say, listen, if I get taken out, if they kill me, it'll be okay. And he takes the chin of his advisor Stop looking at all of this that's happening out in front of you and lifts his eyes up. He directs them away from the panic-inducing chaos that is happening around them, and he points them to the fact that even if he gets knocked off of his throne, even if society devolves into complete and utter chaos, the wicked cannot touch the throne of God. He remains in his place. And so the question of if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? While perhaps well-intentioned, is flawed. Because no scheme of man comes close to removing God from his place. He sits on his throne and he laughs at the schemes of the wicked. So what will the righteous do? Where will the righteous go? The righteous turn to the Lord. Where we flee says something about what we believe about God. It says a great deal about what we believe about God. We are shaken by the chaos around us because we struggle to trust in Him, because we struggle to trust in His plans and His purposes, and because we even struggle to trust His goodness. Choosing to run to our temporary shelters instead of resting in the eternal security that He offers by the blood of the true and better King, Jesus is foolish. They provide no more shelter from the raging of the nations than does a wood frame closet in the middle of a violent tornado. 
David gets it exactly right when he tells his counselor, in the Lord I take refuge. It's because he knows the Lord's rule will not be thwarted by the puny efforts of wicked men who are trying to rip power away from him. And so it's based in that that David points us to the second truth, the second important truth that that he has for us here in in this psalm. We see that in verses 4 through 7, and that is our deeds matter to God. Our deeds matter to God. David's confidence in the Lord is shown in the way that he talks about the Lord ruling and reigning from heaven despite the threats from the wicked. And we've already seen in verse 4, in the first part of verse 4, that he's on his throne. Saw that, uh, and, and what we see here is that as, as part of him being on his throne, as part of his rule and reign, he's testing mankind. You know, David describes this by saying that the Lord's eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man, and the Lord tests the righteous. And so I, I think to understand the testing that's happening here, I think we need to understand that when humanity fell in Genesis chapter 3, it meant something. What happened in the fall is that sin, like a parasite, attached itself to God's good creation, and it corrupted everything. The the corruption that runs to the very core of humanity, the sin that, that lies in all of our hearts, is what leads to the wicked striving to do away with moral decency. But though sin has latched itself onto God's creation and has brought corruption, has brought immorality, and has brought death, creation still belongs to God. It is His. Fallen, corrupted creation, then, is the lab in which the Lord tests mankind. I think that's what David is getting at at verse 4 and 5. Like you would test metals to determine their quality, God is testing mankind. And through this testing, the Lord reveals the wicked and the righteous. And what is revealed through this testing is that the wicked embrace the corruption that lives in the heart of every man. And so because of this, David writes in verse 5 about the Lord. He says, His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, Pastor Michael dealt with this in Psalm chapter 5 back on May 17th. So you may want to go back and listen to uh, where Pastor Michael deals with that. But here in in Psalm chapter 11, uh, when we read this, this idea of the Lord hating the wicked, his soul hating the wicked, we may be tempted to, to pull back from that and say things like, we'll hate the sin but love the sinner, right? And we want to project that onto God. But then we get uncomfortable when we come across text like this because we just don't understand how this could be. But David explains it for us, how this could be right here in the passage. In verse 7, he tells us, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The Lord is morally upright. He is pure and holy through and through. And He made all things according to His own moral uprightness. That's why He could call it very good when he got to the end of his creating work. And so it should not shock us that the Lord hates the wicked and the one who loves violence because they are not righteous and they do not love righteous deeds. They're opposed to everything that he is. The wicked love the corruption brought on by sin. The wicked embrace desires for immorality and reject his righteous rule and reign. So in verse 6, 
We see that the Lord pours out His wrath on the wicked. And the language that David uses is fire and sulfur. And that, I think, points us to Sodom and Gomorrah. The destruction of those wicked cities stands as a constant reminder of the Lord's righteous and just wrath for those who love sin. He he is long-suffering and patient, but he will judge humanity. And when he judges the wicked, it will be based on merit. It's not arbitrary. It will have been earned through the rejection of righteousness. And so what this tells us is that the Lord actually cares about our deeds. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. I'm not suggesting that we are saved by our deeds, that we're saved through works. But James does make it clear for us that our deeds are not meaningless. I mean, he says in James 2.26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith without works is a dead and lifeless faith. He says in James 1, it's like the person who hears the word of the Lord and does not do it. It's like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and immediately forgets what he looks like when he, when he walks away. It's a foolish man. The one who says they believe and does not have works to support it is a fool. See, a Christian's righteous deeds result from faith. A Christian's righteous deeds are the fruit of faith. So then what we see in Psalm 11 is that the fruit of the wicked person, the violence and pushing for moral decay, that's the fruit of a heart that hates God. But there's the problem, right? Paul is clear in Romans 3.10 that none is righteous. No, not one. The reality is we are all corrupted by sin. We have no righteous deeds to offer in our defense. But we have plenty of wicked ones for which we deserve His wrath. You know, David says in verse 7 that the upright will see his face. This is meant to encourage his counselor. Hold on, the upright will see his face. But based on our merits, our own merits, we are not upright. And therefore, no one deserves to see his face. And yet humanity has seen him face to face. What Psalm eleven seven promises has come in Jesus Christ. John tells us this in John 1, in verse 1 and then in 14, where he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The day that David spoke of and looked forward to happened. Paul tells us that, that through this, through our beholding of his face in the person, in the man, Jesus Christ, that through this, God has justified the ungodly. Look at Romans 3, 23 through 26. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith 
in Jesus. Jesus bore the wrath that sinners like you and I deserve. That's what propitiation means. It's the appeasement of wrath. And so through the redemptive work of Christ, the righteousness of God that David mentions in verse 7, where he tells us that the Lord is righteous, this righteousness is both proven, it's proven that the Lord is righteous, and this righteousness is also made available. It's proven in that the cross of Christ shows that no sin goes unpunished. Because we could not say that the Lord is just and righteous if He just shoved it under the rug and pretend that it was never there. No. Through the cross, God dealt with the sins of His people, placing them on and punishing them through the death of His Son, the Word who took on flesh. In three hours on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's fury and wrath to the bottom so that His people those who he purchased by his blood don't have to drink it. And therefore, Paul can say that through Christ, God is shown to be both just and justifier. Those who turn from their sin, who turn from their wicked deeds, and to God through faith in his Christ, have the righteousness of Jesus credited to them. It's through the resurrected Christ that God will one day deal with the wicked once and for all. He will return, and the righteous long for that day. But if you haven't turned to him in faith, that day's not a day to look forward to. And yet, while his patience remains, his righteousness is offered to you through turning from your sins and trusting in the finished work of Christ for your salvation. Because he came and died and rose again, those who turn to him in faith rejoice in the day when humanity will once again see him face to face. Because he died and rose again, God is a refuge for those who believe. We need to understand that hope in that day means something for this day. Those who have been made righteous through faith in Christ love righteous deeds. We love what God loves and we hate what He hates. But loving righteous deeds is more than just talking about righteous deeds. It's easy to talk about doing righteous deeds. But we have to ask, what do the choices that we make reveal about what we love? You say you know that you need to spend more time praying and reading the Bible but you fill your schedule to the point where things get pushed to the side. You say you want to grow in your faith, but you find yourself sleeping in or finding reasons to be out of town most Sundays and away from the corporate worship gathering. You say you want your children to grow in knowledge of the Bible, but you don't gather them together to read and discuss the Scriptures as a family. You say you want to stop looking at pornography, but you are not willing to get rid of the smartphone that you use to look it up. You say that you're concerned about your marriage, but you keep your nose in your phone rather than engaging your spouse in conversation. You say you want to spend more time with your family, but you stay at the, alf- at the office working long hours night after night. You say you want to share the gospel with your coworkers, but you only engage them in conversation about Alabama football or politics. 
You say you want to share the gospel. You, want, you, say, you, you say you want to see the church grow, but you never engage your neighbors. You never make an effort to get to know them, and you never evangelize in your areas of influence. You share a black square on your social media account, but you have never invited a black friend or coworker out to lunch or over to your house for dinner. You say you need to pray more with your wife, but every night you come home, you turn on your favorite show together, and you never bother to talk about the Lord and to pray. You say you want to be more involved in the church, but you always seem to have a reason why you can't volunteer in the areas where the church need help, needs help. You say you would like to be more generous, but your bank account reveals that what you have, you spend exclusively on yourself. We talk about the righteous things that we know that we should be doing. But what does the screen time app on our phones or our recently watched list on Netflix reveal? Does it show that our desires for righteousness aren't nearly as strong as we would have ourselves believe? When we're confronted with our sin and our failure to love righteous deeds, what do we do? Will the righteous repent and continue preaching the gospel to themselves? The good news is that the gospel was, is, and always will be the good news. It daily reminds us of the love that God has for us and that He supplies the grace we need to love what He loves, to love and to do righteous deeds. And so the righteous will flee to Him to receive grace in order to continue in righteousness. Can you pray with me? Father, we thank You. We thank You that You're merciful, that You're patient, you're kind towards us, towards sinners. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your mercy. And yet you pour it out richly on us through Christ, who you set forward to die in our place, to suffer your wrath for a sinful people. That through repentance and faith, we might know you and find refuge in you. May the reality of this refuge that we have in Christ, that we receive by faith. May that spur us on to good works, loving what you love and seeking to make you known to a world around us that is just spiraling out of control. Yet we know you're sovereign over it. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you would be kind and gracious to turn the hearts of men to you, that you would receive the worship that you alone deserve. Pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.